Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Julian Lair, currently at Stripe, who just wrote this blog post I'm really interested in called Signaling as a Service, How Social Status Drives Monetization of Software Product. Julian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, so Julian, uh, before I get into this piece, l- let's talk about uh, what your background is, how, how it's related to it, and, and why did you even uh, write this uh, piece in the first place? How did you get interested in signaling and status? Sure. So um, on a day-to-day basis, I work as a startup partner at Stripe, which means I work with a bunch of accelerators and VCs and help their founders, their startups to figure out, you know, monetization, business model, pricing. So monetization is just something I think a lot about. And um, outside of my job at Stripe, I do a lot of reading and writing. Um, And so inspired by my work at Stripe, so one of the questions I've always had is, you know, why do people spend money on certain products? Why do some products monetize so much better than other products? Specifically, if you compare physical products to digital products, why do people seem to be willing to spend not as much money on digital content? And I read a book uh, a while ago called The Elephant in the Brain, which I thought was really interesting. And so I wrote a blog post that sort of ties together that book, which is mostly about signaling and social status and how that affects monetization, especially of software products. Let's get into it. Let, let's unpack some of the some of the pieces that you were making in, in the post. Perhaps the you know com, uh, components of signaling, you know, message distribution and amplification. Sure. So the way I think about signaling is it's not just one thing. It's more like a it's more like a, I think of it more as like a framework that has different components. And those components are a signal message, signal distribution, and signal amplification. And in order to explain what I mean by those you know, components, maybe I'll, I'll take an example as you know, like a, a pair of Nike sneakers, for example. So the signal message of those sneakers that you just bought might be something along the lines of, I'm able to you know, spend $120 on a pair of sneakers, or it might be something along the lines of, I have an active and healthy lifestyle. Now, as a next step, you need some sort of distribution to get that signal message across to other people. And so in case of the sneakers, the best way to distribute that signal message is to, you know, just wear them in public where other people can see them. But obviously, you know, your signal distribution is somewhat limited by the amount of people who can see your sneakers. So on the one hand, it's like sneakers are great because they, you know, there's like a visualization of the signal message. Like it's very easy to, to have a message and transport that to other people, but you're somewhat limited in the amount of people you can reach. And then there's a third component, which I call signal amplification. So if you're among a group of people who all wear, you know, cool $120 sneakers, how do you make sure that yours stand out? One option would be to, you know, a pair of sneakers that has you know a very unique design like very flashy colors for example or you know if we don't talk about sneakers but let's you know let's take high heels for example they literally make you stand out of the crowd and um, so that's sort of the third component um, that i talk about and physical products you know they, they're great at sort of like visualizing a signal message but 
the signal distribution is, is somewhat limited. And what about digital products? Well, digital products have one crucial advantage over physical products, um, which is, you know, they're intangible. Nobody can see them. So if we take a fitness app, for example, that lives on your phone, the signal message might be the same as that of your sneakers, which is, you know, I live a healthy and active lifestyle. And maybe you subscribe to the premium subscription of that fitness app and you spend $100 a year on that subscription. So, you know, there's also something you're, you're able to spend $100 on a fitness app might be another signal message. Problem is, nobody can see that. Like, it lives on your phone. And most people won't see your, your home screen. And you probably also, you know, you probably won't take a screenshot of, of your fitness app and, and post it on Instagram. So there's some limitation when it comes to, to the distribution um, um, or, or, like, the visualization of what, you, of what you try to achieve. And so another example of, of this would be Take, take books, for example, physical books and ebooks. Arguably, an ebook is more convenient than a physical book. So by now, every one of us should have moved, you know, should have bought a Kindle and just read books on that Kindle and don't buy physical books anymore. But that's not what's happening. Like physical books have, you know, the sales of physical books has remained fairly stable and some markets have even increased in the last couple of years. Whereas ebooks have never caught up with physical books. It's like they declined a bit in recent years. But at the same time, there's also some interesting data that shows that, you know, while people buy more physical books, they actually spend less time reading them. And so as a result, the conclusion that I would draw is, well, maybe the books are just for signaling, right? They lie around the house uh, to impress visitors. And that's just the only reason why you would buy these books in the first place. And so a digital product in that case would have a hard time competing against the physical book. And this is why people aren't willing to spend as much money on a digital book. Another example is the lack of luxury software products, right? Like I can't think of a product that is an equivalent to a Louis Vuitton handbag, really. So there are people who have tried to build something like this. I, I remember when the App Store for, first launched, there was an app called I Am Rich, which was a premium app that sold for, I think, $999, which was the, you know, the, the maximum price that Apple would allow you to charge for. And the, the app didn't have any content. The whole purpose was just to signal that you were able to spend $1,000 on an app. But people didn't buy the app, right? Because, again, signal distribution is, is just not there. You can't show anyone that you spent that much money on the app. So the only app that I can think of that is sort of a luxury product is superhuman like superhuman is a great product but if you think about it like paying 30 dollars a month is quite a lot given that you could also get the product for free by just using gmail now the difference is that superhuman has signal distribution built in because it's an email product so every time you send an email from superhuman there's like a little snippet in your signature that says sent from superhuman. So everybody knows that you are able to spend $30 a month on this product. Another way to, to solve this, this, this problem is by tying a physical product to a digital product. So as an example, um, I would look at credit cards. I think a lot about um, neobanks that have popped up popped up over the last couple of years you know in, in europe we have n26 and revolut and i think you have a bunch of similar apps in in the us and the, the basic functionalities are free to use but then you can subscribe to a premium plan 
which comes with a metal card or like a platinum card in the case of, of, of Apple. And these subscriptions are usually somewhere between like $15 and $20 a month. And they don't have a lot of benefits. Like you have some insurance products that come with it, but they don't really justify the $20 a month price tag. So the only reason why people spend so much money on the subscription is because they get that metal card so they can show off to other people. You know, it's like, it looks more like a, a fashion product than, uh, than a software product, um, really. So that's, that's another interesting strategy um, to solve that problem. Are we going to see more sort of, you know, real world uh, luxury uh, products, uh, you know, digitized? Um, you know, what, what can be digitized? What can't be digitized? You know, what, one quick example is people often say that gold, the difference between gold and Bitcoin is that you can wear gold and, and gold has, you know, sort of a, a luxury or status component to it, whereas, you know, Bitcoin is a little bit different in that sense. What's your take on the broader question, though? Yeah, it's a, it's a good example. So I, you know, in, in contrast to Robin Hanson and, and Kevin Simler, I don't think that every single action and every single uh, consumer object can be traced back to signaling. So, you, you know, well, I do agree with the argument that, you know, certain parts of gold consumption might be to show off to other people, but I think the vast majority is, is you know, it's more as a, there's more of a utility than a, than a signaling aspect. But I think, I think there are certain products that can be digitized in sort of like a virtual world, I guess. I think the more interesting question is, you know, the other way around, can you take a digital product and then sort of tie a physical product to it to increase your signaling uh, that way? What are other examples that come to mind for you? In terms of tie, like having physical products? Yeah, yeah. Not a, not a lot, to be honest. So I wonder why not more people are doing this. Um, but I have seen a few fitness apps that uh, started to, you know, sell um, physical items as part of their premium subscription. So you get like a t-shirt um, or similar item that, you know, that signals that you're part of the premium subscribers, that you're part of the, of the tribe. Uh, but honestly, I think it's something that developers should be looking more into. Um, I think it also, might also be an interesting way to, to avoid the 30% cut that Apple and Google take. So if you monetize a digital product, you have to pay that 30% fee. Um, whereas if it's you know, a physical product, you don't have to pay that fee. So it might be another side benefit of adding a physical component to your digital product. Totally. I'm curious how this intersects a little bit with Eugene Way's uh, status as a service essay. And, you know, which really got into, you know, how social networks like Instagram, TikTok, just about, or just about social status. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, both of that? Sure. So Eugene's article is, is brilliant. And this is like the, one of the main inspirations for my article. So basically, the argument that he makes is that social networks are just about signaling, right? It's just about increasing your social status and building social status over time. And the way I see it is, you know, while digital products do have limitations in terms of um, monetizing signaling, uh, signaling message or signaling distribution, the internet has created a whole new signaling um, uh, utility, which is distribution as a service, which is basically the argument that Eugene makes. So if you think about, you know, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, they don't really have a signaling message. So there's no hidden message in, you know, joining Instagram. The whole purpose is that you have distribution at scale. So 
you know, we talked earlier that, you know, a pair of sneakers, the, the distribution, the signal distribution of a pair of sneakers is limited to the amount of people who can see you wearing those sneakers in public. Well, now Instagram allows you to just take a picture of those sneakers and, and you know, share it with a virtually infinite number of people. So these networks, therefore, have an incentive to acquire as many users as possible, right? This is a classic example of network effects. The network becomes more valuable the more users join. So you can't really monetize the distribution. Like as soon as you would charge a membership fee, you wouldn't reach as many people in the network. And therefore you, you're signaling and you distribute like signaling distribution is, is limited. So it's interesting that on the one hand, they have created this value, but it's, it's, it's difficult to, to monetize it at the same time. So another example that Eugene mentions in his article is uh, Path, which you know deliberately limited uh, membership access uh, or the number of people that you could befriend to I think 150 people. And so his argument is that you know taking his um, status framework, you are incentivized to allow people to connect with as many people as possible to inc- to maximize your signaling potential, and this is why Path failed. Now, another way to look at it is by deliberately limiting the amount of people that can join a network, the membership becomes a signal message. So there are um, elite dating sites, for example, that charge you a couple thousand dollars um, per month or per year to join the network. And so the message, the, the membership becomes the message. You're rich enough to join that network. But in this case, you know, your signaling potential is limited to people in the in-group. So to other people who are part of that network versus, you know, in, in a lot of cases, the, the best way to monetize signaling is to uh, signal to the out-group as well. What do you think is Eugene's uh, big contribution to the, to the literature? Or what did he sort of put in words that wasn't uh, articulated before or understood? Well, I think he's, he was the, like the first one to look at social networks as sort of like status arenas or, to, you know, distribution channels to accumulate social status and to signal to as many people at, at once. I think that is, that is like the main contribution. I, I haven't seen a lot of literature on that before. I think the other thing that's really interesting about his article is that is, is his concept of uh, proof of work. So basically, he looks. He takes his analogy from crypto, where you know you solve a cryptographic puzzle and then you're rewarded with Bitcoin. And in his example, is basically each social network has its own proof of work to that you need to solve. There's sort of some creativity, some creative work that you have to put in to be part of the uh, to be part of the uh, of the tribe and to to signal with other people. So if you think about Twitter, for example the proof of work would be to come up with a very witty statement that doesn't have more than 140 characters or 280 characters. In the case of Instagram, it would be to create a picture um, that is, that is worth sharing or that looks particularly nice in terms of, you know, TikTok, TikTok, it might be something like a dance or some other form of like another meme that you need to perform in order to uh, to signal, which I think is is an interesting way to to look at it. Totally. T- talk a little bit about the difference between uh, signaling as it relates to in group uh, uh, and out group. Sure. So you can look at signaling distribution on two sides. So on the one side, you want to signal to the in group, which means 
everyone else who's part of your tribe. And then you also want to signal to other people who are not part of the tribe. So a good example of that would be an iPhone, right? So on the one hand, you want to perhaps signal to other people who have an iPhone that you're part of the iPhone tribe. But more importantly, you want to signal to other people who don't have an iPhone yet that they are not part of the tribe. Like you're something better than them. And the iPhone does this particularly clever in the form of iMessages, right? Like if I have an iPhone and I'm in a group chat with a bunch of people, I will see exactly who's part of the group and who's not part of the group based on the color of the chat bubble. That would be a good example of that. And signaling potential is always highest when you're able to signal both to the in-group as well as to the out-group. Um, another good example of this is luxury car manufacturers. So car manufacturers will deliberately extend their advertising campaigns to people who are never able to afford the car. And the only reason they do that is they need to educate the people on the out-group about what the signaling message is. So that increases the value for people who are part of the in-group. You argue that the best monetization potential for software products is signaling amplification. Can you elaborate there? Sure. Single, single, like if, you, if you think about uh, signal distribution, um, we mentioned that there's you know, positive network effects. Right? The more people that join a network, the more valuable the network becomes because you can reach more people with your signal message. But at a certain point, you will reach negative um, network effects in the sense that now you have to compete against all of these people, right? You have to stand out of the crowd. Like if, if, the, if the play, like if a social network gets very crowded, it can be difficult to stand out. And so what all these social networks do, and this is, gets back to sort of like the proof of work concept, is they give you a set of tools that allow you to stand out of the crowd. So again, in case of Twitter, it might be, you know, a witty status update that you can have. So maybe you're more creative than other people, and this is how you stand out of the crowd. Or in terms of Instagram, they give you a bunch of filters that look that make your picture look nicer than other pictures. But in this case, you know, the, the signal amplification tools are always free to use. What other people have figured out is that, well, what if we monetize, you know, signal amplification? What if we make people pay to stand out of the crowd? And I think the best example here is, um, is Tinder, right? Like, again, Tinder is free to use. Everybody can join. Again, the network becomes more valuable the more people join or the more people of the opposite sex join the network. But then at some point, you know, you compete against all these other people who want to reach um, the opposite side. So what they do is they, they offer a bunch of um, options to stand out of the crowd, which might be something like super likes, right? And they charge heavily to, to be able, you know, for users to be able to use those, uh, those tools. Um, and I think Tinder is a good example. I mean, they've made more than a billion, I think, in, in revenue last year, from, which is basically all, all of that can be basically tied back to signal amplification. You mentioned Tinder, but uh, another example you have is, uh, is Fortnite of, of monetizing signal amplification. How is Fortnite's monetization model different from others? So Fortnite is an interesting example. I think when we go into Fortnite, what do you have to go back in the history of, of gaming and how games monetize? Games used to be, you know, just like upfront payments. You spend like $50, $80 on a game, and then you can just play the game as long as you want. And then at some point, mobile games arrived and they were free to play, but then in-app purchases were necessary to ultimately win the game or to proceed quicker in the game. What Fortnite does is it is free to play. Everybody can join, 
but it's also free to win because like there are in-app purchases, but none of these in-app purchases help you to be better at the core game. Like you can't buy better weapons. You can't buy stronger armor. All you can buy are signaling elements. So again, free to use. You want to maximize the amount of people you can reach with your signal message. And in your signal message, you have to buy in terms of virtual goods. You have to buy virtual skins, emotes, like certain dances that you can do. This is what, what um, Fortnite charges for. And again, a good example in the sense that I think it's probably the game that has you know, monetized most successfully in the last couple of years. And all of that monetization can be tied back to signal amplification. Totally. So why don't you summarize some of the uh, some of the ideas we've been we've we've been talking about here, and and just you know, how you you earlier described what Eugene's sort of unique contribution is. Why don't you sort of summarize what we've been talking here, what you think your unique contribution to literature is? Sure. So I think as a summary, um, physical products are great to visualize a signal message, but there are certain limitations when it comes to distribution, and so digital products almost perfectly complement physical products in the sense that they might not be great at having their own signal message that you can distribute, but they help you to distribute another signal message at scale. And more importantly, you know, the most successful people have figured out a way to monetize um, signal amplification, so making sure that you stand out of the crowd. In terms of, I guess I'm the first one to look at the monetization aspect of it. I'd love to see more people's thoughts on the on the topic. To be honest, um, I think there's a lot more to explore in this space. What's uh, your request for literature in in the in the like? If you were to keep writing, where where would you explore? What what is uh, not yet understood that you'd like to see more people you know study? It's a good question. I think going back to your question earlier um, about you know what's a good way to digitize physical products. Um, and vice versa. I'd love to see more examples. Like I can only think of, you know, the credit card example, but there might be more examples out there. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any other good examples to be honest. Yeah. Off the top of my head. I have a few questions. How how do you define uh, so- social capital? And um, you know, one sort of explicit um, or specific question I have as it relates to that is, you know, some people think, uh, you know, status is zero sum because it's based on attention, whereas financial capital is positive sum. Some people think social capital is, is positive sum or can be because it's more about trust and you can you know, increase the amount of trust even if you only have finite uh, attention. What, what's your take on sort of that specific question? And then I guess that sort of lends itself to the broader question of how you define social capital. Yeah, it's a good question. I think social capital in the long term is, is definitely positive sum. Like you can accumulate more social capital over time, which then leads to things like trust, as you mentioned, similar to, you know, financial capital, which if you look at it at a very short term basis, might also be zero sum, but then over time allows you to build the wealth over time, which is positive sum is how I would see it. I think what is being interesting is like, what is the link between, you know, financial capital and social capital, how they relate, what's sort of like the exchange rate between the two. Yeah. And how do you think about that? Because you know, there's this interesting sort of thought experiment of, would you rather give up all your financial capital or would you rather give up all your social capital? And I think most people would probably rather give up their financial capital uh, because if they have, well, there's a difference between having a, you know, zero reputation and you can build it again versus having a negative reputation. And, uh, you know, if you're canceled, so to speak, it's pretty hard to get back in the game and thus, you know, hard to make any money. 
yeah, most people I think would think that they can rebuild their their financial capital if they have a great reputation, uh, rather than you know uh, you know rebuild their social capital if they have you know if they have a terrible reputation but but a lot of money. W- what's your take? Yeah, hundred percent. So I think it's probably easier to build social capital first and then monetize that social capital, you know, rather than the other way around. You can probably buy some social capital with financial capital, but I'd, I'd say it's it's a lot harder and a lot more limited. I guess it it, it also depends on you know where you are. If you're very if you're very rich, you know, you might be more you're more more likely to give up on financial capital because it's easier to build rather than if you're poorer, maybe financial capital is, is worth more. So I think the exchange rate differs uh, based on uh, based on where you are. Yeah, it is interesting. Bill Gates is an example of somebody who's so rich that he's been able to totally turn his reputation around, um, you know, from, you know, world's, you know, most hated billionaire or, you know, tech, tech person to, you know, uh, you know, elder statesman um, saving the world. 100%. I think that's a perfect example of it. Yeah. Yeah. So say more about where you where you disagree with uh, with Kevin Sumler and Robin Hansen in terms of they, they think status explains a lot uh, because you know we're, we're we're trying to increase our status that helps us survive it helps us reproduce where where do you think they're they're a bit off so i think robin hansen in a in an interview mentioned that he thinks that 90% of human activity can be traced back to signaling and that just seems very high i think a there's a bunch of activities that you just do to survive. You know, you need to sleep, you need to eat, you need to drink. There's no signaling component in that. And that's probably at least, you know, 30% of your of your time or your activities. I think there's also a bunch of activities that can't be explained by signaling that are more related to entertainment, I guess. You know, if I, if I watch Netflix all afternoon, is there really a signaling component in that? Or, you know, gambling, for example, is also something that can't really be explained with signaling. And then I think you have to differentiate between activities that you do as a consumer versus activities that you do in a business context. So I think, you know, in a business context, you probably make more rational decisions than in a personal context or a personal consumer context, perhaps. So I also don't think that any of the, you know, the signaling stuff that I came up with in, in my article doesn't, you know, none of that really applies to B2B software, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm, I'm curious for your sort of a request for startups in, in space and I'll, I'll give, give mine pretty quickly. Uh, one of them I, I'm working on is, is Cosign and it's a way for people to more explicitly well, cosine people uh, say who they think is a, who they think is amazing. Let's say you know if, if Mark Andreessen follows you on Twitter, that um, you know might mean something only uh, until you find out that he follows eighteen thousand people on Twitter. But right. it's a, uh, a site that you know is explicitly about well, one is explicitly about you know who they think is impressive or up and coming or give some context for it because you know Twitter follow can mean anything from you know. A reciprocity. I follow this person because they follow me. To I think they're really impressive. To I think they're really funny. To I think they're really smart. It, it's not exactly clear, but it is interesting to think about. Even as unclear as it is, it's the closest thing we have to uh, sort of you know a uh, sort of legible understanding of who you know resonates or likes or respects other people. Uh, and so you can imagine sort of unbundling that to make it more explicit. 
And then you could also imagine it being more limited. If it was a site where it's like, hey, I, these are the people that, these are the five to 10 people that I think are super impressive, you know, that would carry weight, more weight than a Harvard degree. Uh, and so we still pay, you know, quarter million dollars to these education institutions largely to credentialize, whereas the, the real power of credentials, I think, lies with, with individuals. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a good example. Um, I think what's interesting about the example that you mentioned is that, you know, how much is, is signaling or a signal message worth, you know, if, you know, in terms of the, the Mark Andreessen example, how much is a follow from him worth if he follows 18,000 18, people? So I think what's interesting is that you sort of need to artificially limit the amount of people that, that can, you know, that are, Uh, impacted from that signal message. So you sort of need to build artificial scarcity in a sense. I, I think this is where NFTs become really interesting in the sense of, you know, for a digital product that can be copy pasted an infinite amount of times, how do you create scarcity in a, you know, in a digital context? Alex Danko has a few interesting posts on, on that topic as well. But I think that's something that, would like to see more of sort of like um, how, how do you create digital scarcity yeah totally is there any um, or any takeaway from Alex Danko's post that you think is particularly salient um, not in particular just the um, I just think that his uh, his posts and the book that he's currently writing on, um, on on scarcity is is super interesting totally a, a couple other ideas I have one is um, I think we haven't yet really figured out how to reward people for being early adopters. And we, we figured it out economically a little bit with, with crypto and that's, they're trying to, you know, t the token uh, mechanism is a way to do that economically to reward people to, for joining, you know, decentralized social networks early such that they get upside if it, if it goes big. But I, I think there are also ways to do it from a social status perspective. Like I should know that, you know, it should be, you know, in product time, we used to have user numbers next to everybody. So you knew who, who was early, you know, we should do that for who was the first person to discover this restaurant, the first person to discover this band, first person to discover, you know, X, Y, Z, you can imagine a whole, you know, a new Yelp being built uh, on top of that. Uh, but a way to reward uh, users for, for being early, uh, I think is a huge opportunity um, such that they contribute more data. Um, but also I, I think it's a way to, to really uncover new, new things. It's sort of quantified uh, tastemakers a little bit. So the flip side to that idea is um, I want to see people stake, stake more, more things. You know, we're seeing a lot of people having opinions on coronavirus uh, bet on it. <laughs> uh, you know, how much do you, do you, do you think about this? Put your, put your reputation on it, put, put your status on it in ways that I think we can quantify sentiment. Like I want to go to a website that says, you know, um, 20% of people think, you know, lockdown will, will be ending, you know, next week, or even just the words, you know, coronavirus down 20% or capitalism up 20% or Bill Gates, like I, I, I'm Bill Gates vaccines down. There's just, you know, putting status on the line such that we can get better data around discovery and sentiment is something I'm excited about. Yeah, that's an interesting problem space. I guess that gets back to the question of, you know, how much is social capital worth versus financial capital? And are you willing to put your social capital you know, on the line. I wonder if that explains why none of these staking uh, products have, have really taken off and seen mainstream adoption. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's, you're not really willing to put it on the line when there's no upside. And I think the, these platforms, they, they make it mostly around economic. I think they actually have to, to tune into social 
they have to sort of make a class of people, you know, like, you know, super forecasters right now, it's just a, you know, a bullshit thing that you, I don't, I don't know who calls you super for how you become one. Uh, uh, but you know, we should quantify this, <laughs> you know, who, uh, and we should quantify the best, you know, taste like product hunt discover did that a little bit around people who want to discover startups and, and, you know, hype machine, maybe around artists, but I think we can do a much better job of, of making it cool to be a, uh, or legible to be sort of a, a tastemaker uh, or, or a cool hunter, a discoverer, and then also a, a predictor, you know, and uh, a lot, encourage people to build up reputations such that their, their numbers can make them pundits rather than, you know, how charismatic they are. I think product hunt is actually a very good example of this, where, you know, if you are the hunter of a product that gets a lot of upvotes, um, you are, you know, that is a signal that you are, um, sort of like a tastemaker, you know the next upcoming the next upcoming thing. I guess Hacker News works in a in a similar way, where you know if you get more upvotes, you get more karma points, and that sort of increases your signaling message within within that community. Um, there's a few comp- like a few startups that work with badges um, in a similar context, where if you are one of the first thousand members, you get like a special batch that says you're a founding member of, of the product. Um, but I think there's a lot more we can do in that space. Yeah, totally. So what, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, some of the ideas you have or your request for startups? So something that I'm really interested in at the moment is, you know, with the current Corona situation, what impact does that have, you know, from a signaling point of view? So if you think about it, basically the, the, major distribution platform for signaling at this point is Zoom, right? Like it went from 10 million daily active users in December to I think 200 million at this point, which is like crazy growth. And so I wonder what the second order effect of of that is. Like, are we going to spend more money on furniture? Like are are furniture sales going going up as 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 a consequence of that? Or you know, would Zoom or should Zoom offer like an app store where you can buy, you know, nicer backgrounds or, you know, digital objects that are on your screen. I wonder if there's something there. I'd love to see more experiments in that in that space. I also think that Animal Crossing has um, is experimenting a bit in that uh, in a similar space where a lot of people play the game now that they can't meet with, you know, friends in the real world. And so people are designing their own custom designs and custom outfits. And there's a few brands who've, who've tried to uh, take advantage of that. I think the, qu- the question there is like, who, who actually captures the value? Is it, is it the platform? Is it, is it just the platform who uh, can offer these in-app purchases? Or do they allow third parties to build on top of the platform? Do they allow third-party brands to make money off digital items that, um, that, can, be, that can be bought? I think that, that's something that I'd, like to, that I'd like to see more of. Yeah, totally. How do you think about, uh, say more about how coronavirus affects uh, digital signaling? Well, if you can't go out of your home, then, you know, the signaling value of the clothes that you buy probably goes down, right? Like we talked about sneakers, but, you know, you, you probably don't wear sneakers at home. There's no point in spending more money on shoes or other luxury products like that. Similarly, like you could argue that, well, you could still take a picture of your sneakers and post them on Instagram, but I think there's like limited signaling value in doing that at the moment. So I think per- like signaling purchases will probably move to other things such as furniture, which is usually limited to a f- couple of people who visit you at home. Now you have a reason 
to show what you have at home. So maybe we will see more, maybe, you know, maybe book sales, sales will go up, not just because people have more time to read, but also because they can show what type of books they have lying around at home uh, via Zoom. Um, so I think those second order effects are super interesting. Yeah, it is interesting how sort of, you know, if we transpose, you know, physical onto online in terms of signaling, but in terms of anything really, in the beginning, you know, people try to do, you know, just sort of like, you know, put the New York Times online, so to speak, you know, what we were doing in physical, just online. And then we sort of figure out what's native to the internet, where, you know, things like eBay and Amazon, and then, you know, decentralized crypto networks, of course, taking that step further. And it's interesting to see what, think about what that will look like for signaling as well, because in the, in the real world, what is it? It's like how strong you are, how beautiful you are, you know, uh, how in demand by the opposite sex you are, how, you know, smart you are, you know, with, with you know, you mentioned reading books, for example, your job and your net worth and things, you know, physical things that can signal your, your net worth, just to name a few things that people signal about. And digitally, you know, some of those things don't transpose uh, as well. And then there, you know, things that are native to the internet that you couldn't do physically. So I'm curious, what, what, comes, to you, what comes to mind to you when I, when I sort of uh, share this, this stream of consciousness? Well, I wonder if we, we will see more social networks that have, you know, spatial interfaces. So like an interface that replicates what the real world looks like and allows you to have digital content there, allows you to signal things in a digital way that you would have um, digitally, if, if that makes sense. So, you know, people think of, as, as Fortnite, as, as of Fortnite as a game, but then is it really a game or is it more of a social network? Is it a, you know, is it a theme park as Matthew Ball put it, or is it, you know, is it just a place for people to meet and hang out? Um, so I wonder if, if we will see more of those um, social networks that you know look like a game from an interface perspective but they're not really games they're more um, ways to meet people and then as a consequence ways to show off and and signal digitally one other element i want to talk about social capital is people we were talking largely about it in a sort of individual aspect something you can accumulate people also talk about it in the context of communities uh communities that have you know social capital uh, you know sort of amongst each other um, and people say that, uh, you know, people often quote this book, Bowling Alone, um, as to say that, uh, you know, communities have been you know, disintermediated by the internet and technology and, and we spend less time together and thus there's less social capital, less trust amongst the, the nodes uh, in, in the individual uh, networks, at least by, by location. Uh, my sort of you know, theory is that, uh, sorry, the internet, you know, destroyed community and it's rebuilding community in, in its own, own image, both, you know, digitally, obviously that's already happened, but also... Uh, in person when, uh, you know, when the time comes for us to get back to in person, it's going to help people meet people who are more like them or, or who are, you know, more aligned with them, more resonate with them, help them uh, connect, you know, find fun things to do together. And it just hasn't gotten around to the, to the uh, IRL portion of it. What's your take broadly on sort of social c- capital within, um, within communities and um, your take on, uh, on what I've just talked about? Well, I think it goes back to the thing we discussed earlier about in-groups versus out-groups. And are you signaling to people who are part of your tribe? Are you signaling that you, you, know, that you belong to that tribe? Or are you signaling to others that you're part of that tribe? I think those are two different things. I do think that digital tribes have difficulty signaling to the out-group. Um, but then if you take Fortnite as an example, they sort of figured this out because 
you can signal not just within Fortnite, but then whatever happens in Fortnite is also you know streamed on on Twitch, for example. So you you do reach people on the out group as well. I wonder if tools like Twitch that allow you to you know stream what you're doing will solve some of those problems. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I've I've gone into a little bit of sort of the literature on on tribalism and and politis, you know um, polarization. And you know, Martin Gurry has this this great thesis of you know his, this book, The Revolt of the Public, which basically says it talks about how the phenomenon of you know today there there is a public that is constantly seeing the actions of our elites. You know, we we didn't see that JFK you know was doing all these things with mistresses and and all these drugs, et cetera. And if we did, we might, I don't know, think of him in the same way that we think of Donald Trump. And similarly, with Donald Trump, we see every sort of, you know, gaffe and mistake and stupid thing he says and does. And if it was the 1960s, he might be protected, uh, you know, much more significantly. And so uh, basically, there's no, everything is public. There's no privacy anymore. Similarly, when we are, you know, it's so much more easy to be polarized when everything we do is uh, in public and thus... Um, when we share our opinions, it's it's much easier to see the the contrary opinion. Typically, you know, we used to have our own private spaces where we could share our you know tribal uh, opinions. Uh, and so, not only are there more disagreements, but there's also more showing off because you know that when you're talking, uh, typically you were before you were just talking to your own tribe, and now you know you're always talking to a separate tribe, and your tribe knows that you're talking to a separate tribe. So you get points by sort of you know flipping the bird to the to the other tribe by your own tribe. Any takes on that? Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I guess, you know, before the internet, it was more difficult to build social capital because you did, you did have to go through, uh, you know, a gatekeeper that would allow you to, to signal and build social capital. But then once you had social capital, it was a lot easier to keep it. Whereas in the digital world, I think it's, it's, it's a lot easier to build social capital. Like everybody can go on Twitter and build a following there. Um, you know, start a blog and 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 get status points for whatever content you write. But then, on the same hand, it's it's also easier to lose all of that social capital. I think there's a lot of examples of people who've you know just with one stupid tweet lost so much social capital that um, it's it's very difficult to come back from that. So I think yeah, as you say, disadvantages and advantages at the same time. Yeah, I think it's going to be even easier over time. Like if you think about, you know, reputation, it's it's on the internet, it's more sort of, you know, we have a stack market for for companies. Uh, I was talking about stock market for ideas. But in the future, it is likely, I think, that we're probably going to have some version of a stock market for people, more dynamic sense of, of identity where people can speculate in, in real time. Uh, and I think that's going to, you know, for better and for worse, you know, and, and it's really, it's scary. But you know, encourage people to lose reputation a, a lot quicker um, and gain it. And, and you're already seeing, you know, China, you know, r- reports about sort of China's social credit score, but you could imagine a, even a more decentralized version of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think income share agreements are basically exactly that, right? Like you, you, you're betting on a person that through social capital will then also have, you know, build financial capital. Uh, I think we'll see a lot more of that. Not sure if that's necessarily a good or a bad thing. I can see a lot of you know ways that this could go wrong, but um, th- definitely exciting. All right, so that, that's a great place to wrap. My guest today has been Julian Lair. Uh, Julian, for people who want to uh, learn more about you or, or go deeper, where might you point them? 
Sure. So the best way to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Lair Julian. That's L-E-H-R-J-U-L-I-A-N. Or on my blog, which is julian.digital. Yeah. Awesome. Julian, this has been a fantastic episode. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.com dot VC.